Hey everyone. Sometimes the universe makes something perfect. Today's book is the Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book. And boy, are Kellen and I funny on it. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and as a kid, I had a big stuffed dog named Rocket who would guard the foot of my bed until one night when I woke up and I thought uh, it was a lion sitting there. And it terrified <laughs> me. So after that, he just guarded under my bed. <laughs> Very much a who watches the watchman moment. <laughs> Any stuffed animal big enough to be protective is also big enough to be scary. <laughs> Aristotle. And I'm David Vance. When I was 12, a classmate called me out for passing off a Calvin and Hobbes joke like it was mine. Who was I hurting, Cassandra? The Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book explores the creative process behind the best comic of all time. Like that the author has a wife who's only real to him. <laughs> And this is The Book Pile. All right, this week we're doing a special Calvin and Hobbes deal where if you rate and review The Book Pile, we'll send you illegal Calvin and Hobbes merch because someone should be making money on this thing. (laughs) I really want to go pitch Shark Tank and be like, okay, sharks, there's a huge unserved market for Calvin and Hobbes merch. (laughs) Engineer Cowboy (laughs) said... Pick a lane. (laughs) So Chewbacca says, I've really been enjoying listening to this podcast. It's both entertaining and educational. I didn't expect to actually get good writing tips from listening, so that was a nice surprise, even though I'll probably never get any of my own writing published besides this review. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the review started out about us and ended about them. (laughs) And JZW12 says, to quote David, so this is a short one. Thanks. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Oklahoma City this week, April 7th through the 9th. That's Thursday to Saturday at the Bricktown Comedy Club. Go to bricktowncomedy.com for tickets. Also, I'm going to be in Fairbanks, Alaska, April 20th through the 23rd, three different venues. Uh, I don't have the names in front of me right now, but the way that I imagine Alaska, I think it's probably just going to be the three buildings in town. Well, now you just offended your whole Alaska <laughs> <know>. audience. <laughs> I, we actually we actually do have a few, a few uh, subscribers in Fairbanks, Alaska. So please come out. I was just kidding. Go to KellenErskine.com for tickets. Also, um, (laughs) Alaska feels like we tapped Canada on the shoulder so we could cut ahead of them in line. (laughs) Anyway, if you don't live in Alaska, but you still want to see me, I'm going to be in Batavia, Illinois at the Comedy Vault, April 28th through the 30th. I just figured, like, if you live in the continental U.S., it's pretty central. (laughs) So it's the shortest drive possible for everyone in the country. (laughs) Finally, our next two books are Helgoland and The Grapes of Wrath, which, if I remember right, is about how easy it is to be a farmer. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from the Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book. All right, lesson one, tell the truth. Bill Watterson says something fascinating. He says, art must entertain, but the significance of any art lies in its ability to express truths. Surprise is the essence of humor, and nothing is more surprising than the truth. Mm -hmm. 
throughout the book, he really just tries to tell some very blunt truths. And I, I didn't really pick up on it as a kid, but Calvin and Hobbes goes to very dark places. <laughs> Here's one. Calvin's mom wakes up to him yelling, Mom, wake up, come quick. What's wrong? What's the matter? Now she's in his room and he says, Do you think love is nothing but a biochemical reaction designed to make sure our genes get passed on? <laughs> she says, Whatever it is, it's all that's keeping me from strangling you right now. <laughs> then he's alone in bed. Mom's midnight reassurances are never very reassuring. <laughs> so Do you know good. how many different dark, scary ideas are in that one strip? <laughs> Bill is spitting his bluntest, darkest truths, and we're all like, that's hilarious. (laughs) Another one, Calvin's in class. Miss Wormwood, I have a question about this math lesson. Given that sooner or later we're all just going to die, what's the point of learning about integers? (laughs) (laughs) And the last one, Miss Wormwood, could we arrange our seats in a circle and have a little discussion? Specifically, I'd like to debate whether cannibalism ought to be grounds for leniency and murder, since it's less wasteful. And then he's in the corner with a dunce cap. For some reason, they'd rather teach us stuff that any fool can look up in a book. (laughs) Bill Watterson is just chasing his thoughts to their honest, dark conclusions. Mm -hmm. And he sold like 50 million books. (laughs) I think people just resonate with the interesting ideas and with that level of honesty. I will say, though, if you want to tell truth in your work, first you have to know some truths. (laughs) As a kid, I would write stories and I'd compare them to my favorites and be like, wait, why is mine so much worse? And looking back, part of the reason is that I didn't know anything. <laughs> it's it's hard to say something meaningful when you don't know anything meaningful. <laughs> yeah, do you think when Jim Davis first started reading Calvin and Hobbes, he was like, <laughs> I mean, the truth is I love lasagna. Is that okay? <laughs> I mean, Jim Davis has been so wildly successful. Mm-hmm. Do you think he thinks he's good? <laughs> I, I am so curious. I love the first page or two of the book, uh, of this book, when Bill Watterson talks about how he loves how he is 100% in control. He's a one-man machine. He comes up with the ideas, the dialogue. He does all the artwork. And immediately I thought of this at the end of several of the Garfield collections that I had as a kid, the very last page is a picture of the Garfield team. And it's like, no exaggeration, at least 18 people. And it lists all of them off as like, writer, illustrator, illustrator, illustrator. Yeah, it's, it's just a big bunch of moving parts at this point. How can a comic strip that does so little need so much? (laughs) That's even more embarrassing. (laughs) We talk a lot about imposter syndrome. There's part of me that wonders if he has imposter syndrome, because in that case, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to read, yeah, Jim Davis has a, has a Garfield book with commentary where he's, where he's like, the thing that I love about art is uh, <laughs> sleeping in in my mansion and having everyone else do it for me. <laughs> What if Bill Watterson is also responsible for Garfield? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Calvin and Hobbes is the project where he didn't sell out because he already sold out as hard as he could on Garfield. (laughs) He's like, I don't need to sell out my other cat. (laughs) (laughs) On that subject of honesty, I'm working on a screenplay with my friend Natalie, and 
we realized that we need to write our characters more honestly. So we made ourselves a new rule that basically goes, okay, our dumb character can only ever act as dumb as someone we actually know. (laughs) Our crazy libertarian can only be as crazy and libertarian as someone we know. (laughs) That same character can only have as many millions in Bitcoin as the same (laughs) character we know. Which is a surprisingly high amount. (laughs) All right. Lesson two. True inspiration isn't plagiarism. So when I was eight years old, I brought up Calvin and Hobbes with my grandmother. And she said, you know that Hobbes isn't real, right? (laughs) Is your grandmother the wicked witch? (laughs) (laughs) It's like... You You should have said, you know, neither is Calvin. (laughs) (laughs) On that subject, I wish when that conversation happened that I could go back in time and possess you in that moment, have your eyes roll up into the back of your head and be like, Hobbes exists in the consciousness of millions of Americans. (laughs) So in that sense, he is more real than you. (laughs) Hold me, grandmother. (laughs) It's just... First of all, I think it's something that promotes Calvin and Hobbes from just a cartoon up to art because so much of great art is up to interpretation, which is what Hobbes is. So, like, what is Mona Lisa smiling at? Why is that guy yelling in the screen painting? Does that top fall over in Inception? Like, true art. Watterson, he leaves he leaves us to interpret it. E- even in this book where he like discloses everything down to the model of the fountain pen that he uses, he still doesn't want to answer the question. Yeah. But then he does say, Hobbes is more about the subjective nature of reality than about dolls coming to life. Mm. And to me, that's the reason why this works so well what real originality is. He didn't just add the obligatory zany animal sidekick because he thought people liked that, you know, character type in every Disney movie. And his dual nature, like stuffed animal, is he real? Is he both? That's what Watterson says represents how all of us view reality differently. So really, what is real? Yeah. But I still would love to go off to him and be like, absolutely, man, totally get it. But like, so is he? <laughs> <laughs> I would love if every author who's ever had an ambiguous ending has a true answer written down somewhere. <laughs> Hamlet is 30% crazy. <laughs> the author of The Lady and the Tiger wrote on the back, it's the lady. <laughs> Tarantino's like, well, the briefcase, it just... Like a bunch of glow sticks. (laughs) So regarding his own inspiration for Calvin and Hobbes, and really just cartooning in general, Watterson says, the most important thing I learned from Peanuts, which by the way, nobody calls it that, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) No one's ever like, I love that Peanuts Christmas special. They wouldn't even know what you're talking. (laughs) Yeah, you're supposed to call it Peanuts Monster. (laughs) It's sort of like uh, the Baby Yoda thing. No one's ever like, right. oh, yeah, my favorite character is Grogu. I have a Grogu backpack. <laughs> so he says, the most important thing I learned from Peanuts is that a comic strip can have an emotional edge to it 
and that it can talk about the big issues of life in a sensitive and perceptive way. And so, <laughs> and then he said, what if it were also fun and funny? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting at as far as originality goes, is that he was influenced by Peanuts, but just in the sense of what a comic strip could do, not so much like, I'm going to make my own version of Charlie Brown, you know? Uh-huh. So I'm going to rant a little bit right here, and it's going to feel preachy, but it's something I'm very passionate about. So if I'm not able to make this funny enough, I'm going to go back and add some hilarious sound effects. <laughs> I just think that in this, in our current age of everyone copying everyone else on TikTok, there's been a massive blurring between what's inspiration for an idea and what is straight up plagiarism and not just on social media. Way too much of what is created nowadays is just lifted from other popular stuff rather than being genuinely inspired by it. I... <laughs> I think that true artistic interpretation comes from a feeling or from the admiration of what a piece of art has accomplished rather than just copy-pasting and deforming something that you like and calling it your idea. Uh, Mm. To me, the difference is that you could say, I'm going to draw a comic strip like Calvin and Hobbes because I like Calvin and Hobbes. Or you could look at it like, I love what Calvin and Hobbes did in revolutionizing a format and bringing layered messages to a comic strip. (laughs) That's inspiring. To me, the the latter mm-hmm. is, is what gives birth to meaningful novelty. Um, but the, the first example just feels more like going along with a trend. All right. Lesson three, chase what you love unless a judge tells you to stop. <laughs> In Calvin and Hobbes, dinosaurs are a big part of Calvin's world. And it wasn't one of those things where a producer said, oh, dinosaurs are really hot right now. Let's get in on this dinosaur craze. <laughs> it, it happened because Bill Watterson just likes dinosaurs. He says, I enjoy dinosaurs more now than I did as a kid. Sometimes the best way to generate new ideas is to go out and learn something. <laughs> and it, it strikes me reading this book that in your work, it's so valuable to just explore the things you love, unless you love economics and your podcasting partner thinks it's boring. <laughs> Another example is Spaceman Spiff, Calvin's astronaut alter ego. Bill Watterson just loved astronauts and loved space as a kid. And even the landscapes in those strips, he says, the alien landscapes come from the canyons of southern Utah, a place more weird and spectacular than anything I've previously been able to make up, which is very cool. But I'm also like, the weirdest place you can make up is Utah. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it when people say something, you can't make this stuff up. And it's like, (laughs) they just told a story about how the bank closed an hour earlier than usual. Uh (laughs) It's like, I think I could have. (laughs) You can't make it up because you wouldn't bother to make up a story that dull. (laughs) It's like... If off the top of my head, I can think of a cactus with umbrella feet, I'm pretty sure (laughs) that I could make up your dumb story about tripping in Costco. (laughs) So Bill Watterson says, If I keep my eyes open and follow my interests, sooner or later the effort yields questions, thoughts, and ideas. Like Calvin, I just head out into the yard in search of weirdness, and with the right attitude, I make discoveries. Mm. And I think that's so cool. It, it sort of reminds me of that Robert Frost quote, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Mm. And I think Bill Watterson is basically saying, if you want to make something that people love, first you have to love making it. Mm-hmm. That's why people love babies. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I had a similar pivotal moment uh, during my early stand-up career. I realized that I was writing jokes based on hoping that I would make this random assortment of strangers laugh rather than just writing what I thought was funny. And when I started making those changes of what, like, what is actually funny to me? Like, would I laugh at my own joke? Um, I got rid of easily half of my material. Wow. Kellen applies that same standard to our podcast when he cuts all my jokes. <laughs> Would I laugh at this? <laughs> what is pretty funny because within like two weeks, uh, someone came up to me after a show and they're like, I like it. You're kind of mean up there. <laughs> <laughs> What would make me laugh? Hmm. <laughs> Cruelty. All right. Lesson four. Good art isn't calculated. And that makes it risky. Hmm. I was going to call this lesson, don't compromise your art when you can afford it. But that only makes sense <laughs> at the end of this. So Watterson says, quote, when I come up with an idea that surprises me, I'm flattered when people respond to my work, but I don't feel accountable to public demand. It's a very like, thanks, but no thanks moment. He says, <laughs> trying to please people encourages calculation. Hmm. And this strip is valuable to me only insofar as it's honest and sincere. I love that. Um, I do feel like that in stand-up, what, what I'm trying to f achieve as of late isn't fame. It's not to be funny to everyone. It's just to find those who share what I also think is funny. And huh. so like, what I constantly risk in doing that is people not liking me as I stick to stronger and maybe more controversial stances. But I just think, isn't that more compelling and fun for the people who are on board? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I love his sentiment of like, yeah, but don't feel like you owe anyone anything. <laughs> What's interesting is that it does seem to be one of those paradoxes where when you try to pander to other people, you don't bring on those other people. But when you try to write what's interesting for yourself, you're much more likely to bring on that larger audience you wanted in the first place. Absolutely. So when Watterson had achieved some major success, at one point he was making this ultimatum uh, with newspapers across the country. He had this new proposed format for the Sunday paper, which he where he wanted his cartoon to take up a third of the page, a block of it, rather than it being cut up into smaller blocks that newspapers could rearrange mm -hmm. um, at their own will around other comics, which was the standard at the time. Like you just, you, that's just what you did. But he, to the ones who fought against it, to those markets, he just said, quote, if you don't want my strip, don't have it. Uh -huh. <laughs> I just love that, the integrity that he had in his art. But I also think there's a little asterisk there of he wasn't doing this when he was three weeks in. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, to, to me, it speaks to that Steve Martin idea of be so good they can't ignore you. Because mm -hmm. the entire comics industry said, you know, this is so unreasonable that you want to take sabbaticals and not merchandise your characters and have special formats for your Sunday strips. But he was just so good that everyone had to do exactly what he said. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's really flexing when he's talking about this, but he's sort of just masquerading, though, as like an artistic purist. Uh -huh. But he 
he still throws in there, look, if you don't want my cartoon, uh, don't put it in your paper, but I'm not going to apologize for making a highly popular cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the risks that he took just with the cartoon itself. Picture any comic strip out there. Every character looks the same, same outfit, everything, 100% of the time, every strip. But uh, there are so many times where that just isn't the case, where Bill Watterson, at one point, he cuts off Calvin's hair for a week of the strip. Mm -hmm. Calvin just doesn't have, like... Can you imagine if Mickey just didn't have his ears for an entire cartoon? <laughs> Like, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> At one point, we don't even see Calvin as Calvin for several days when he's a little tiger. <laughs> and keeping in mind that, like, it's fun when you read them in these collections. But at the time, these collections didn't, like, books of comics didn't exist. You had to wait yeah. for next day's paper. And you're still mm -hmm. like, what is happening here? <laughs> we have younger listeners who didn't grow up reading comics in the newspaper. To explain what it's like... Imagine that your friend is telling you a fascinating story in short texts, but for every one text you get from your friend, you get 19 texts from strangers that you don't care about at all. <laughs> and then every text is a day apart. <laughs> the most ambitious one to me is uh, there were four days of, of strips where there's no dialogue. It's just Calvin growing in size. Uh-huh. And so every day you would just see another piece of him, like now he's as big as the earth, now he's bigger, now he's stretching out of the galaxy. And Watterson said, quote, my original idea was to do this for a month. <laughs> <laughs> he says, but I chickened out. And it's just so funny in contrast to me because Garfield has done this once in like in 40 years. There was one comic where Garfield, he's just sleeping one day. It's just the Z's coming out of his bed for the three panels. And then the next day he says, oh, I slept through yesterday's cartoon. Oh my I could imagine the like risk of his Jim Davis just like sweating through like I just gotta get to Friday. <laughs> they'll see. They'll see. <laughs> I wanna ask the fans of Garfield, how sad is your life that this makes it better? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really funny, and it totally reminds me of, it, it's almost like Watterson is giving a passive-aggressive jab to Garfield. At the beginning of the book, he talks about how the newspaper business is changing. He says that comics were invented in the late 1800s, and he said the comics were visual, easy to understand, funny, boisterous, and lowbrow by design, and hence, immediately popular. <laughs> <laughs> just to end this with all of this he did make a deal with the devil when he started when he rationalizes mm. it by saying you have to sign with a big syndicate a big business that takes your creative rights if you ever want to be published in the papers it's a very much like well i had to do it <laughs> was there any other pathway he could have taken to get calvin and Hobbes published do you feel like he took the wrong path Oh, I don't think he took the wrong path. I just think even if mm -hmm. now he can retroactively say that it was a means to an end, 
he did sell out a little bit. I mean, I'm glad that he did. I'm not sure. saying like I, I'm not as vehement as he is in this in this realm. If anything, as an observer, I admire the balls that he has had to do what he did and the risks that he took. Yeah. But it's also like, don't pretend that everything that you did was punk rock. <laughs> First of all, I, I like Calvin and Hobbes so much that even though I've spent most of my working life in advertising, when he talks about not selling out, I'm like, so true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, random facts. I don't know if it's official, but there's a Calvin and Hobbes Twitter account. It posts old Calvin and Hobbes issues with captions that I know Bill Watterson would hate. <laughs> <laughs> like, it uses that emoji of a monkey hiding its face. <laughs> or one caption just says, classic moms. <laughs> There's one where Calvin broke his dad's binoculars because he was tossing them to himself, and the caption says, not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Watterson wouldn't sell out his characters for like $100 million, but now they're being sold out on Twitter for free. <laughs> so I love when he was explaining uh, the inspiration for each character, and he says... Susie Durkins is earnest, serious, and smart. The kind of girl I was attracted to in school and eventually married. Mm -hmm. Stuff, fun little fact. Kellen, I want to ask you what your childhood Mount Rushmore was. Like, what were the four creations that you loved the most? Hmm. I would say the, the worlds that I spent the most time in would have been Calvin and Hobbes for sure. Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, Tintin. Which is a oh interesting a French comic strip adventure series from the 1930s. It was a it was a full page every Sunday in this French newspaper every week, um, and he designed it so that every year was a new story. So when you get the collections, huh. it, they're like 52 pages for 52 weeks. Um, wow, may have been inspiration for Indiana Jones. Only instead of uh, an archaeologist as a journalist. And my, my fourth head on Mount Rushmore growing up was probably Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> A surprise pick on both Mount Rushmores. <laughs> How about you? What's your Mount Rushmore? Mine was Harry Potter, Calvin and Hobbes, Pixar, Beatles. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm as basic as you are legally allowed to be. <laughs> I don't know if there's any property that I've ever loved at the top of my list that was not beloved by millions of people. <laughs> but Cal Calvin and Hobbes and Harry Potter both ended about right when I caught up to the protagonist in age. Oh. So when I was about to turn six and 17. So now I'm worried Paul McCartney's going to die when I turn 64, <laughs> <laughs> which would actually make him super old. So I'd be cool with that. I thought this quote was sweet. It's extremely solitary work, so it helps to be pathologically antisocial. <laughs> I worked in my home and mailed the strips away, so I never had much sense of an audience reading my work. This was fine with me, as it let me preserve the idea that I was drawing the strip primarily to entertain my wife. Huh. <laughs> so I loved this contradiction in the book that he certainly didn't intend. So on page 166, Watterson says, for some time, I've used Calvin's snowman as a way to make fun of the art world. I enjoy studying art, but the field certainly attracts its share of pretentious blowhards. <laughs> oh, does it? <laughs> Five pages later, he says, 
You can make your superhero a psychopath, you can draw gut-splattering violence, and you can call it a graphic novel, but comic books are still incredibly stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, I'm sorry, are you looking down on some art? (laughs) He really does, like... Throughout the comic strip, he mocks television so much, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Is the genre of newspaper comics that much better than television? (laughs) (laughs) Let me go back to my family circus. (laughs) And it's it's unique take. (laughs) I grabbed some of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes panels, because you know how a comic is best when it's read to you? (laughs) In this one, he's eating dinner with his mom. He says... Is hamburger meat made out of people from Hamburg? And she's disgusted. Of course not. It's ground beef. I'm eating a cow. Right. I don't think I can finish this. (laughs) And speaking of children, he says of Charlie Brown, quote, Surely no other strip has presented a world so relentlessly cruel and heartless. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I hate it too. (laughs) The last one, this might be too poignant to end on. I just thought it was beautiful that there's that... I I wish I could remember the the phrase for how your perspective on a a piece of art can change based on the context behind it. Like that, the crows flying that Van Gogh painted, and you find out that was the last one, that was his last painting before his death, um, his unfortunate death. Oh, And then being familiar with this comic strip for years, when Calvin and Hobbes have this conversation about dreams, and uh, maybe dreams are a way that we can hang out together when we're technically apart, you know, sleeping. Mm -hmm. And you find out that Bill Watterson said that that was the the first strip that he wrote after his cat died. And his cat, Sprite, was the literal inspiration for Hobbes. Yeah, that's very sweet. I mean, his cat and a 17th century philosopher. Um, (laughs) But I think that guy had already passed. (laughs) I always wanted to do a sketch where Thomas Hobbes gets to heaven and meets John Calvin, and then they, like, ride around in a wagon. (laughs) (laughs) There's this quote by Samuel Butler, The dead are often just as living to us as the living are, only we cannot get them to believe it. They can come to us, but till we die we cannot go to them. To be dead is to be unable to understand that one is alive. Wow. You're listening to the book. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the Calvin and Hobbes 10th anniversary book. One, tell the truth. Two, true inspiration isn't plagiarism. Three, chase what you love. Four, Good art isn't calculated. And five, stand up for your art, no matter what people say, as soon as you're a millionaire. Next time on The Book Pile, we ask, what's quantum mechanics? And why do they charge me so much to fix my quantum car? (laughs) Find out all this and more as we read Helgoland, only on The Book Pile. (laughs) 